think the need for a hospital to always be there for their community. It's an assumption people make, but at the end of that assumption are people that is, whose lives have been dedicated to being there. I've seen it through that shooting. I've seen it through COVID. I've seen it through hurricanes. Uh, you know, my wife and my girls were at home by themselves during Hurricane Michael. Uh, but thankfully, I have neighbors that are great and they care for them and help clean up after that because dad's going to the hospital. Fiori Communications, it's How I Got Here, a show of inspiring stories from Tallahassee area leaders, business owners, and neighbors, all the challenges, opportunities, inspirations, the twists and turns of life that led them to where they are today. Everyone has a story worth telling, and I am really grateful that we get to bring a few of them to you. I truly have been changed by my conversations with these amazing people, and I'm confident you will be too. I'm Dave Fiore, and in this episode, I speak with Alan Cassie, CEO of HCA Florida Capital Hospital. Alan is a graduate of the University of North Carolina and earned a Master of Health Administration from Virginia Commonwealth University. After graduating, he launched his career at the HCA Regional Office in Reston, Virginia, as Director of Business Operations, where he was involved in strategic planning for 12 area hospitals. His career as a hospital administrator includes two stops in Tallahassee and being in the center of the storm in Las Vegas after a gunman killed 60 and injured hundreds at a country music festival in 2017. He has been a key player in navigating the care of this region during COVID and Hurricane Michael and recently helped implement a complete rebrand of the hospital. Alan and his wife Jackie have two daughters and say they are grateful to be back in the capital city. We began our conversation with how he would describe himself today. Kind of a blend-in guy, you know, behind the scenes, but very, I think, at my root, um, focused on being faithful to whatever is in front of me. So mm. whether that's at work, church, school, you know, with my spouse and my kids, uh, I think that's fundamentally, you know, who I am. We moved a lot as a kid, so I don't really consider myself or identify with a location uh, like some folks do. My family's kind of dispersed over the country, and I've moved uh, for school all over the country. But I think that's, uh, you know, wherever I've been, that's kind of the the root is just be faithful with what you have in front of you, and hopefully it'll lead to more and and better things. And so, if, at a high level, that's how I describe it. That's great. All right. So I see you were born in Durham, North Carolina, right? Mm -hmm. But from what you just said, you didn't um, necessarily you didn't spend all your childhood years there. Yeah, no, I, I moved around a lot. I actually counted it up, and if you go in my garage, I have a license plate from all the states. Now, I didn't drive, obviously, when I was a kid, right. but just for memorabilia. So I was born in North Carolina, uh, moved from there to Virginia, where I actually met my now wife, uh, Jackie, back when we were neighbors and we were 12. And <laughs> okay. then I moved to New Jersey, and then I moved to Ohio, one year in Indiana, and then I went to North Carolina, and then— s in there somewhere was a summer in New York City. So kind of, kind of all over the board as my mom and her uh, career kind of took us all over the, the U.S. Okay. And what did she do? So she, back in, you know, the 80s and 90s, when you think about it, there wasn't a lot of technology. 
in uh, manufacturing facilities. So she actually started with IT uh, back in, uh, I remember one of the, the companies was Fruit of the Loom <laughs> back in North Carolina. Right. Uh, and over the years, she just grew in her IT uh, executive presence, and she eventually became a CIO, Chief Information Officer, right. of several companies, including uh, kind of high-level executive positions at Cardinal Health and some other private equity companies. So just kind of followed her career through the years, and you know, I think her career uh, left a lot of positive impression on how I've become who I am. Uh, you know, she's a ferocious reader, as my dad was as well. Right. Uh, and that really, I think, inspired me to be uh, in business um, or kind of have that business bent to myself. Mm. So. Yeah. So your wife is Jackie, mm-hmm. right? And so you met when you were 12, which I did not know. Uh, you moved after that, right? So you. Yep. So did you stay in touch? Were you like school-age sweethearts or what was that story? Yeah, I think we, we, we probably would have hidden it a little bit more, but, you know, when you're 12, are you really anything? That's and right. So, uh, yeah. you know, but I definitely, that's where we met. I did uh, ask her to marry me back then, but... You did? <laughs> she politely declined. Um, that was wise. But the sec- round, you know, round two, I was successful, so that was great. But <laughs> yeah. no, so we, we stayed in touch back then, actually, instant messenger, if you remember those yeah. days of yeah. AOL, when you actually had to dial up, and we would have <laughs> yeah. all these long, long uh, instant message threads. And uh, we in the good old uh, phone calling card, when you had to have the long distance card, yeah. and we would use those and burn those down uh, for years. And for our anniversary, I think four, probably four or five years ago, she printed off. I don't know how she did it, but she printed off all the instant messages uh, <laughs> that we had going back and forth. And I'll tell you what, there's some things you uh, can't believe you wrote <laughs> when you were a, a youth. Yeah. When did you ask for the second time? Uh, there's actually during, so I went to UNC Chapel Hill undergrad, right. uh, did economics, and then we were kind of long distance dating while she was at VCU in Richmond. Right. And uh, we kind of got back in touch actually at 9 11. I remember it was the, the morning of 9 11. She called me and kind of woke me back, woke me up because I think that's when you reach out to the people you love and care the right. most about. And so that kind of sparked our relationship. And so while I was finishing undergrad, she was finishing undergrad. Uh, you know, I asked her to marry me, um, and then we, then I moved to Richmond, Virginia, where she finished her nursing degree. Right. So your decision to go to grad school at Virginia Commonwealth was based on love more than an academic decision? It, it, heavily influenced by the, uh, the former. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like it was a good decision. Yeah. All right. So let's go, go back a little bit in your, um, your childhood. Tell me about, do you have siblings? Yeah, one sister. Okay. Yep, Melinda. So she was always a star athlete. She, she was a big cross-country runner. Uh, I mean, she would just run and run and run and run. Uh, she still does. She lives in California now, has two uh, lovely children, but she's always been one of those just focused on uh, performance athletics, yeah. running 50s, 100s, oh, wow. uh, doing the overnight, you know, uh, things in the mountains that no one, you know, really <laughs> dreams about doing, but she loves that. Yeah. I mean, other than moving around a lot, what, what, do you remember most about your early childhood years as far as what you were interested in, what, you know, what your hobbies were? Yeah. So really early on growing up in North Carolina, you know, football doesn't exist. It's basketball. Right. So we had a, my dad was a Carolina fan. My uncle 
Uh, my mom's side was a Duke fan. So I remember early on going to various events and there was kind of like a dichotomy in the living room. Sure. Uh, especially if they were ever playing. So kind of basketball uh, was early on uh, just something I was interested in, just shooting hoops outside and then went to a couple of basketball camps. Never really good enough. Always thought I could uh, – uh, box people out of the paint, but I always got in foul <laughs> trouble, you know, really quickly. And I, I could right. never mentally overcome that, but always still enjoy going out just shooting hoops. And then, you know, Carolina basketball is probably the, the sport that has stuck with me over the years. Right. Uh, and then when I was in Virginia, I actually fell in love with mountain biking of all things. And so I, I had my first bike and we would start out uh, on the, you know, the uh, power line trails, just messing around. Yeah. But that's been a sport that stuck with me, and I still do. It's probably my most faithful sport today, and been doing it for over 20 years plus now. So well, tell it. I mean, we don't have mountains, but Tallahassee's a pretty awesome place for trail riding, right? Ec- excellent trails here in Tallahassee, and, uh, you know, I've probably ridden them all 100 times, but it's it's my go-to thing. And yeah. I just always love it. Even, you know, I had to get a forerunner with a hitch, so I could put my bike on the back. So. <laughs> That's right. We talked about you spending time in Durham. Why did you decide to go to UNC and and go to college in Chapel Hill? So Chapel Hill has always been on my heart. You know, I always grew up with Carolina shirts. You know, the the championship game uh, a couple weeks ago, I had my 1993, you know, championship T-shirt on. So a lot of subliminal messaging in my home, I think, (laughs) when I was a child. It was Uh, 93. Was that the Christian Leitner semifinal year? I think so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was. And that's the thing. I don't even remember when I was a kid. But that wasn't a semifinal. That was a a regional championship game. Yeah, they actually uh, – my my shirt has all these holes in it, so I can't even actually read who they were were playing. But a lot of subliminal messaging, I think, when I was a kid. You know, just thought about North Carolina. So – and it's an excellent school. Yeah. Top-ranked public school. So I got into to UNC Chapel Hill and uh, thought I wanted to do business, uh, but ended up doing economics instead. So Okay. So, uh, but you study, you got your master's in health administration. Mm-hmm. So was hospital administration always kind of a path you thought you were going to take or what led to that decision? Yeah, no, it's a good question because I don't think a lot of folks know that you can get a master's in health, you know, healthcare administration. Right. You know, I think the genesis was really uh, being into economics, kind of finance, business. Really thought I wanted to be investment banking, actually. So did internship in New York City at Citigroup, a big investment bank. Uh, but just didn't feel the alignment to the call to what that would be, you know, long term. Mm. And I started to volunteer at UNC hospitals in the ER and also up on the pediatric unit. And just interacting with the patients, interacting with the staff, seeing the complexity of a hospital. Yeah. I just fell in love with it. And I think healthcare administration really kind of merged both uh, desires. Um, and so in VCU, you know, for what it's worth, was a top, you know, at the time, you know, number three program in the country. Right. It's kind of one of those hidden programs because – we think about healthcare administration as a profession it really didn't exist until after World War II, uh, when uh, hospitals even became something other than a church or a community-oriented, mm-hmm. uh, you know, public asset. Right. So uh, that's evolved, and that health that program has been around, uh, gosh, over seventy years now. Right. Uh, and it's it was a, a great a great thing uh, in my career. Right. Yeah, we don't want to sell VCU short on your decision. It <laughs> yeah. was it was good that you could accomplish both goals at the same time, yep, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. Um, all right. So after you graduate and you you talked about how you've kind of gotten a heart for the hospital and working in healthcare, 
Um, you ended up at the HCA regional headquarters right there in Richmond, right? Actually in Reston, Virginia. Reston, So okay. we actually moved to Reston, which is in Northern Virginia. Uh, and then that hospital system, so HCA Healthcare, large organization, large healthcare, healthcare company, you know, in the U.S., has regional offices. So okay. I was at a regional office in Reston, Virginia. Okay. And uh, we oversaw essentially 12 to 15 hospitals really in different states and provided, you know, strategic planning, project management, you know, other services to them. Right. So what was that experience like? Did that allow you to kind of learn the the working side of a hospital a little bit better, I would think? Yeah. So the, the benefit of, I think, starting at a regional or higher level for me was that I didn't have a lot of direct, you know, healthcare administration experience. And my mentor, my boss, uh, had Margaret Lewis, was a division president, and then Nina Hopcroft was another uh, executive in business development. And I got to sit under their tutelage, if you will, for two years when they were actually doing reviews and strategic planning reviews and monthly operating reviews with 12 different hospitals, you know, 12 times a year. So I always say I had 144 opportunities, you know, a year uh, times two wow. to learn and see, uh, you know, different executive styles, different trends, different dynamics. Mm. And that really laid a great foundation for me to be able to be where I am today. Yeah. It was like a crash course, it, right? It, but it's through awareness and, and association where there's not a lot of expected of me, but I got to observe and, you know, be part of that team. Right. So. That's a good situation to be it in was. when you get to learn and not have that pressure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You talked about HCA and what, it, you know, it is. It is it the largest? So, yeah, when you think about hospitals and organizations in healthcare, I mean, HCA is obviously one of the largest because we have 185 hospitals in 22 states, five in the UK, largest in Florida. We have uh, 49 hospitals in the state of Florida with almost 80,000 employees here in the state, mm-hmm. uh, Fortune 63 company, and been around, uh, really st- founded by uh, physicians uh, in a family, the Frist family, man, over 50 plus years ago now. And it's really been a great, steady organization that's pr- uh, provided care with consistency across those 22, you know, states. Right. So, and there's no comparison, frankly, in the U.S. other than the VA. Uh, it really is the only thing that's a like size. When you think about the scale of our, uh, you know, employee base, our IT systems, our back office, our supply chain, there's really nothing that's uh, comparable. Right. Before you took that first job at the regional headquarters, was HCA on your radar? Was that kind of a target employer for you? Yeah, so HCA has a great legacy with VCU in particular. A lot of our uh, senior executives in HCA were VCU alums. Okay. And so there has been a great rich tradition of hiring, you know, young administrators from VCU. And so they were on my radar, but I think the opportunity that was afforded me to be under that mentor, uh, you know, for two years Mm -hmm. really was what drove me uh, to the organization. Okay. And you left there to move into a hospital position, mm-hmm. right, as associate chief operating officer mm-hmm. at the HCA hospital in back in Richmond, right? Yeah, so we moved from Reston back to Richmond, and HCA does a great job with executive leadership development. So there is a uh, we call it leader HCA executive development, right? And there are right around I want to say a thousand applications, and six folks were selected, and I was very fortunate to have support to get into that development program where there's didactic training, there's on-the-job training, and that's where I got my first shot, if you will, at Henrico Doctors Hospital in Richmond, Virginia. 
as I call it, a you know, junior administrator. So. <laughs> so what was that experience like? Did you enjoy, you know, taking what you had learned over the last two years and in this program and applying it in an actual hospital setting? Yeah. It, one of the questions I remember when I was interviewing for the, the position was somebody, uh, very senior and executive said, Alan, you've had all the strategic planning and high level thinking. How are you going to handle, you know, the environmental service worker who calls you at 2 a.m. and there's a leak? You know, how, how are you going to do both? And I I, I really enjoyed that because operations and running a hospital is truly 24-7, mm-hmm. and you're kind of like a city mayor. You're constantly trying to feed folks, keep the power on, doctors uh, happy, the OR going, uh, and there's always constantly issues no matter, you know, what day of the week. Right. And I think the same framework of building strategic relationships, you know, at that level at the division really helps when it comes to running any organization. It's all about, you know, caring about and having a relationship with your employees, your physicians, and your community. Right. And that's, uh, you know, I really enjoy being able to apply that. You know, some fun stories from when, you know, as a junior administrator were, you know, we had snow days. So when you think about it, if it snows uh, and schools are out, most nurses rely on the schools that for childcare, right? For various reasons, so we would form caravans of four-wheel drive trucks to go pick up folks and provide childcare and make sure that we can keep the hospital going. Uh, so I remember one of my first things as a junior administrator was sleeping on the floor uh, with with my uh, in the boardroom, basically after coordinating, you know, all the snow uh, transportation for nurses to get to the hospital. So there's right. all these little things you you don't ever plan for, but uh, you enjoy and remember <laughs> along the way. So you go and pick up the nurses and their children and bring them all to the hospital. So during another parallel example is during a hurricane, we do exactly that. We prepare for child care, pet care, uh, family care, and make sure that we can always sustain, you know, the, the awareness and ability to care for the community, you know, no matter what, wow. which revolves yeah. caring for our employees. Uh, and their pets and ensuring that they're all cared for so that they can be there right. and basically live at the hospital. Wow. Because you can't do much if there are no nurses in the hospital. Can't right? do anything. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So the next part of your journey is coming to Tallahassee, mm-hmm. right? And you came um, to come to be the chief operating officer at, Ca- at the time, Capital Regional Medical Center. Um, so how did you end up here? Yeah, so great. You know, honestly, never – had thought about Tallahassee, you know, never even considered it. That uh, wasn't on my radar, but my uh, mentor, other mentor, Brian Cook, was the CEO at the time. And honestly, I just fell in love with him and mm. came down, interviewed, and he became like a big brother, you know, to me, uh, you know, mentored me, showed me the way, took me under his wing. Uh, I remember at the time, my children were so young, somebody back in Richmond gave me a little onesie with, you know, Seminole garb and gear. And <laughs> it's like, who, who is that? They, they play basketball? Uh, but, you know, we had a, it was a great transition in, you know, it's a great community for family, mm-hmm. uh, immediately plugged in the community and, and the hospital. And I think, frankly, having great experiences back then enabled me to come back, uh, you know, and pick up kind of where I left off. Right. Yeah, and at least, you know, Tallahassee is now what people – who are not familiar with Tallahassee usually think of what Florida should look like. Yep. So this was probably more of a familiar setting to you then. 
the trees, beach. mountain biking. I remember interviewing and driving down Meridian and just, I called my wife and I was like, this is gorgeous. I mean, yeah. Just this road is absolutely beautiful. These canopy roads. Canopy roads or something. Now, yeah. Spanish moss, I was not used to in Virginia, North Carolina, <laughs> but once, yeah. once you learn to stay away from the red bugs, you're good. Yeah. So. The red bugs, they're, it's the hidden treasure of Spanish moss. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, all right, so you you mentioned your your children, your mm-hmm. two daughters, mm-hmm. right? So I just wanted to talk about your family a little bit, talk about Jackie and your and your children. So at this time, they were very young, right? When you came to Tallahassee the first time. Yep. Yeah, I can't remember their ages, but they were you know uh, you know still taking naps every day and right. you know, no school uh, yet. Uh, but Peyton and Lane, they're twelve and now ten. Uh, they're beautiful girls, you know, grow, growing like weeds. You know, Peyton's playing softball, enjoys life here in Tallahassee, both doing very well. Lane uh, loves Harry Potter, and she loves math. And so her she goes to Mathnasium and enjoys, you know, doing that. Yeah. Not not that I would have liked that, but uh, they're both the joys uh, for us. And so, and then Jackie's was a nurse uh, for many years, basically got me through graduate school and maintains her nursing license. But okay. once the girl's... Started getting a little bit older. She's able to stay home, and and now she works for a local company doing uh, kind of uh, interior design manufacturing. So she actually produces uh, great fabric based products for uh, for homes. Okay, all over Tallahassee. So. Well, we can we can give them a shout out. What is the company? It's uh, Hip Chicks uh, Designs, and so uh, Jane and her team do a great job. And Jackie's been blessed to have that opportunity. Okay, awesome. Um, all right, so you were here for about three years. Right. Yeah, a little under, actually, a little under two and a half. So okay. it really wasn't even, I think it was like more two and f- two years and a couple months. All right. And you left here to move to Las Vegas yeah. to Sunrise Hospital and Medical Center. So was that a, a, a chance to be at a bigger facility and do more things, or what was the motivation to go out to Las Vegas? Yeah, another place I'd never thought in a million years <laughs> I would, uh, you know, move to. Right. Uh, but yeah, no, Sunrise is one of our largest hospitals in the company. It's very complex. Nevada is a state, really, I think there's three to four million people, but the majority live in Las Vegas. Okay. And so Sunrise is the largest hospital in the state of Nevada, and really the first and only in many things. They have a 72-bed neonatal ICU, pediatric open-heart surgery, largest emergency department in the whole country for HCA. I mean, just a a big complex place and really an area that needs a lot of healthcare. Right. Uh, and a lot of folks don't think about the people that live in Las Vegas, but there is a great thriving community of people who live there and love it. Uh, and we were there to support their needs. Yeah. So you were there as chief operating officer, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. on the administration side, that's the number two person. Mm-hmm. Yep. Just a, from a hospital administration standpoint, what is the difference between a CEO and a COO at that level as far as what you do on a daily basis? Yeah, so a hospital has a couple key executives. There's normally a chief nursing officer who oversees all the, the kind of clinical day-to-day care in the organization, normally a chief operating officer, and they see the non-clinical mm-hmm. uh, areas like EVS, food services, uh, pharmacy, laboratory, but the COOs also typically take uh, the surgical services and some of the procedural areas that are not just traditional inpatient nursing units. Uh, and then most COOs obviously al- also do construction, so any of the building projects, okay. strategic planning, contracts, a lot of different contracts, a lot of regulatory things. So when you, you look at uh, you know a hospital like my size now basically 30 to 40% of the workforce is nurses, but 60 plus percent of the workforce to 70s, depending on the, the 
the way you talk about it, are non-nurses. Okay. So there's a lot of the workforce that's required to care for patients. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And when you were in Las Vegas, you did have a chance to do some of those things, right? Build buildings, start mm-hmm. new programs. What's the process in in your role in, deve- in figuring out what the needs are and then how to how to meet those needs. Yeah, so Nevada was interesting. My scope and scale really grew, like mentally, because I thought, what does the state of Nevada need? Mm. Meaning we're the largest provider at the state, and we got a lot of referrals from Eastern California and, and even Western Arizona. So you looked at programs that were needed that weren't offered, like in the entire state. So one I was the most proud of, it's called ECMO, uh, Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation. I should get a yeah, little, little ding for that. <laughs> and essentially, it's folks who really their lungs just cannot keep up, and they need mm-hmm. to be their blood to be oxygenated uh, to keep them alive. But you basically put oxygen in your blood by taking your blood out of your body, putting oxygen in, then putting your blood back in your body. Okay. So it's kind of a closed system. Uh, so we there's no one doing it in the entire state of Nevada. And so I worked with physicians, nurses, the team to build a sustainable program that offered that service. And remember, our first patient was a young mom from Arizona who had just really decompensated after she had delivered her baby. Uh, And thankfully, they flew her in. We put her on ECMO. And three days later, you know, she looked terrible when she came in. She, She woke up. Her eyes were there. We were able to decannulate her, and she was able to hold her baby. Mm-hmm. So you think about that life-saving kind of care. That's that was probably the the proudest of many things that we achieved there. Right. So as an administrator, who's the dollar and cents guy in the mm-hmm. buildings and the programs, how do you how does that impact you when you see you know person to person instances of you know real people having their lives saved or being helped or their lives changed because of the care you know, your hospital is able to provide. Yeah, I, I see the administrator's role as bringing together all the the different ingredients because you have to have a sustainable service for the community. It has to be financially sustainable. You have to have high-quality providers and clinicians. Mm-hmm. Your ambition needs to be something related to a measurable quality outcome for the patients. And it needs to add value to the community long-term, meaning, you know, you're, you're doing something like saving lives. Right. And so there's really no one else that's positioned in the organization to see all those aspects kind of at a bird's eye view and then also see the talent that's latent in the organization and bring them together and organize them. So it's kind of like being a coach. It's kind of how, you know, associated um, right. where coaches – they have assistant coaches, they see talent, they organize the play differently, they see the game, they see the potential, they're thinking three years ahead yet focus on today. You're yeah. you're kind of like a coach. That's kind of how I liken it. Like Dean Smith? <laughs> Maybe Roy Roy Williams. Roy Williams. Okay. <laughs> Both retired now. Yes. Hey everybody. Just a quick reminder that this episode is brought to you by Fiori Communications. Just like people, every business has a story to tell, and we've been helping our clients tell their story since 2001, because who you are as a company is just as important as what you do. To learn more about how telling your story can make a difference in your business, visit FioriCommunications.com. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. All right, we're going to turn to a little more somber subject now sure. in, you know, related to Las Vegas. On October 1st, 2017, 
at a country music festival featuring Jason Aldean, a gunman from the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Resort, opened fire on concert goers. Um, 60 people died, hundreds were wounded in the worst attack of its kind in modern American history. And your hospital was right in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. I know and treated more than 200 of those victims, right? Mm-hmm. And all coming in within just a couple of hours of um, when the attack occurred. So what time did it happen? What time of day was that that it happened? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, truly tragic event. So it was, I get the numbers wrong, it was 9 and probably nine seventeen, nine oh nine, something like that. So okay. it was in the evening uh, that it occurred. And uh, I was actually at home. We had had a camping adventure the night before. So mm-hmm. I was like doubly tired. So I was actually getting ready for bed and uh, the nursing supervisor called me and said, hey, there's something going on. I hear something. But quite frankly, I kind of blew it off because we have a lot of events in Vegas. There's a lot of care demand. A lot of different things occur that we handle normally, you know, like a like an organization. But then one of my directors, uh, Tracy, was at the event and she called me and that's when I knew it was serious mm. and real. So obviously raced into the hospital and uh, started to help the team, you know, immediately. Yeah. So I was, that's what I was going to ask is what, what is the first – so when you realize this is a tragic event mm-hmm. and you're going to have a lot of pressure on the hospital, what's the first thing that's going through your head? What are you, what are you trying to accomplish first? Care. Care for the patients and the families. I mean, you, you immediately just go to action. I mean, it's kind of – you don't think. Uh, mm-hmm. You just, you know, immediately post it up in the emergency department and then you just do whatever you need to do to save people's lives. Um, you call every – one of my big roles was coordinating as many caregivers as I could to come and help because it was just an overwhelming system, you know, response. And so calling all the doctors, calling all the nurses, coordinating supplies, you know, making sure that everything was cared for as best as you could, that that was really it. I mean, it's truly a – it was a in the moment, just go and right. do what you can to care for, for patients. So when you got there, the victims were already coming at that point? Yeah, so I mean, true chaos, you know, when you walk in because you don't know what's going on, and I've never seen anything like it, you know, in mm-hmm. my life, and I don't ever want to again. Uh, but there, there were patients everywhere, uh, you know, blood everywhere, people running around. Uh, we weren't sure what it was at the moment. So, you know, being over security for a big hospital where I have 3,200 employees that work for me, one of my first thoughts was, are we secure, you know, and making right. sure we have a secure organization. Uh, so you think all those things, you think, all right, do we have supplies? Do we have blood? Do we have, how are we going to triage these folks? And then just, it was kind of a beautiful in the sense that it all kind of just came together. I've never seen such perfect teamwork and kind of harmony and communication because the way I describe it uh, retrospectively is everyone removed every ounce of pride and just focus on the patient and the family. There is no title, no nothing. And we all just work together to care for the patients. So, uh, but yeah, we had 124 gunshot wound victims show up in a matter of a couple hours. And, you know, when you think about it, uh, if anybody knows of what a trauma alert is, you know, when you have one trauma alert, which is one gunshot wound victim, there's typically 10 people that respond within 15 minutes to a trauma bay. And so to have 124 in two hours obviously was exceptional. Right. Um, and it was uh, – but, again, teamwork kind of overtook and 
able to prevail with what we had. Right. What impact did that night have on you personally? I think the need for a hospital to always be there for their community. It's an assumption people make, but at the end of that assumption are people that is, whose lives have been dedicated to being there. I've seen it through that shooting. I've seen it through COVID. I've seen it through hurricanes. Uh, you know, my wife and my girls were at home by themselves during Hurricane Michael. Mm. Uh, right. and thankfully, I have neighbors that are great and they care for them and help clean up after that because dad's going to the hospital. And that same sentiment, I think, is really what prevails uh, and is our calling, you know, as healthcare leaders and healthcare professionals is to care for our community no matter what. Uh, so that's the principle. The second is that communication is the most important thing in any healthcare event. Uh, you know, I think some of the technical knowledge that doctors or nurses might have can get lost, but the sense of connection and communication with the patient from an administrator or any caregiver as, is as equally as important as the message. So I think right. that, that uh, communication and connection is something I'll never forget because my CEO, Todd Sklamberg, his role that night he kind of assumed was managing the communication and the fear and the uncertainty of 400-plus loved ones that wanted to know where their spouse, where their child, where their brother was while we were struggling through the care that we were providing to this overwhelming number of patients. And I'll never forget that and how he deftly uh, worked and supported the communication of those families. Mm. Right. So not too long after that, you had the opportunity to return back to Tallahassee, mm -hmm. right, and take over as CEO of, again, what was Capital Regional Medical Center. So was that an easy decision for you? Were you excited to come back to Tallahassee? What was going on in your head at that point? Yeah, it was great because I, I had gotten a call from some of the leaders who I had known, you know, within our company, and absolutely simple decision to say, yes, I'm interested. Right. Uh, great organization and great team. And more importantly, coming back to folks I knew, uh, a lot of the medical staff had still been the same mm -hmm. and had good connections with them. Uh, and coming back to Tallahassee, let me step back. Vegas, you know, it grew on me. It's not a city I think a lot of folks think they're going to live, but being a mountain biker and outdoors, uh, outdoorsman kind of individual, beautiful mountains, great access to, you know, world-class hiking and mountain biking. and So you liked your time in Vegas. Uh, I loved all that. Yeah. You know, family-wise, Tallahassee is a great place. Right. Uh, it's a great city to raise kids, and the kids just plugged right in when we got back here. Right. But there's no strip here in the same way. That is true. I, I miss a couple of restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> How did it feel being the CEO, the person in charge now? You are you are the person now. So how what was that transition like? It was interesting. I think the the philosophy I've come to realize over the four years I've been CEO now is you know, there really is no one else but me. And I don't mean that in a prideful way. Yeah. It really, there's no one else that's going to make the decision. There's no one else that's going to burden the pressure. No one else is going to give that, you know, feedback that is painful to do. Right. Uh, except for me. So, and then there's also no one that's going to champion uh, the vision or the communication strategy for the organization uh, but me. Now, again, I... I I hate saying that but me, but really the, all the cover goes away, you know, right. when you're the CEO uh, and you got to really think through a lot more, uh, 
than you did as when you had cover, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, obviously there are lots of people involved in the vision and the management and all that, but you can't say it was his idea or her idea. Exactly. It's you. Yep. Yep. Right. Do you enjoy that? I mean, is that – do you embrace that role? Yeah. No, I, I think at the end of the day I see, uh, you know, philosophically I think as long as my heart has been the same and that's to care for my team and my people mm-hmm. and just to care for people in general – um, you know, as long as that philosophy is never changes, I think that's been the genesis of my success. Um, and so I, I do enjoy it. I do enjoy the vision. I enjoy the strategy. I enjoy the communication. But I also enjoy being thoughtful and reflective, you know, when we have times of crisis or issues mm-hmm. and just being, you know, uh, there for others while we struggle through whatever we're going through. Yeah. Right. You mentioned COVID, and we certainly mm-hmm. can't have this conversation without discussing that. Mm-hmm. You and your hospital were obviously in the center of care for our community, right in the middle of, you know, the thick of it all. And you had to make decisions that there's no way you could have been prepared for because no one was unless you were around, I guess, in 1918. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so when you think back on those early months, you know, especially those the first part of 2020, kind of what goes through your head? What do you take from that time the most? Yeah, so it, it was just so much uncertainty, you know, where there was just this fear, I think, driven decision-making relative to let's clean all the doorknobs, let's do this. I mean, just all these thoughts of where a virus could be, right. you know, could cripple you and overwhelm you. And we took a lot of extraordinary precautions early on. I remember delivering uh, a baby in a negative pressure room. You know, just because we weren't sure we could deliver in a, you know, regular operatory and making decisions on canceling surgical cases and Mm. uh, closing entrances, closing visitation, which is probably the absolute hardest thing to do. Right. Is, but, you know, at the time thinking this is the best thing for not only the patient, the visitor and our staff. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of decisions early on, I think, that, um, you know, not necessarily change, but that were you know, hyper-focused on fear. And I saw that evolve, you know, after two years to, okay, how do we mitigate the risk but still provide the care and allow, you know, the organization to continue to care for the community as it normally would? Right. How do we reopen visitation safely? How do we reopen surgery safely? How do we kind of revitalize, you know, the organization and, and uh, both smartly? Uh, and early on, there was a lot of fear about PPE and, do we have enough PPE? And thankfully, being part of HCA, we never ran out, came close to running out, or had concerns with PPE. We right. did an excellent job moving uh, stock around the comp- or around the country, you know, as we needed to. And the same with ventilators and nurses and others. Uh, we were able to move, you know, kind of resources around. And the other principle I've always had, and really from Vegas, uh, was we we should say yes. So when there is a request from patients struggling in Georgia, my disposition was always to get to yes. How can we support that hospital, support mm-hmm. that patient, and accept those uh, those needs uh, from other smaller hospitals in their region? And so that 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 is one way that that we uh, we tried to lead throughout. Right. I can't even imagine in your position watching your heroic frontline workers and the great care at, at risk to their own safety and their desire to serve and, um, you know, care for those who were really, really sick mm-hmm. and really, really scared. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure you had to be proud to watch all that unfold as well. Yeah, no, I think at the end of the day, seeing 
it's like you you can watch someone's eyes and see them go from fear to how can I care for this person or I'm going to overcome. It's almost like they put themselves down and uh, to care yeah. for someone else or they die to self to lift someone else up. And and that's the moment of, I think, what really true healthcare providers uh, are, and that is giving their lives to someone else um, with the protection, with, you know, good clinical protocol and smart, uh, you know, process. But at the end of the day, you are there to support someone else. And, right. uh, you know, couldn't be more proud of, you know, the team from the physicians, from the nurses, uh, environmental services. I mean, yeah. you know, laboratory, all the laboratory professionals that had this wave of new testing and wave of expectation and results reporting and, uh, you know, all those different things. We, you know, we've cared for all right over, right at 8,000 COVID patients so far. And, you know, each one was an opportunity to provide great care and required a whole team of folks to do it. So couldn't be more proud of them. Yeah. Has it changed the way that you approach the delivery of care, you think, moving forward in any way? I think fundamentally the need for family to remain involved and visitors essentially to remain involved because, you know, if your mom's in the hospital and you've been with your mom for six months and then you're dropping her off, you know, with us, we're going to provide great care, but no one's going to know her the way you do and the way you can communicate with her. So I do think it's challenged us to to really ensure that we continue to have family-oriented care. Uh, throughout the organization. So that's like a new, not, I don't think it's a new concept, but it's a new kind of lens through which we see uh, all the care delivery we we do provide going forward. Right, right. Okay, another big change at the hospital, of course, is a recent rebranding mm-hmm. um, to HCA Florida Capital Hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was that process like, or I probably should say is like, because I, I know that's got to be ongoing. That's a a major change. So how, how has that gone? Yeah. So I, I, I have a joke and I said, uh, 30 days post transition. If somebody brings me, you know, letterhead or anything with the old logo, they get a pair of movie tickets. So, <laughs> so it's, it's out there on the airwaves now. Yeah. Uh, it, it's been a great transition because I think for many years, for 43 years, we've served the community, uh, you know, faithfully as Tallahassee Community Hospital back in 1979. And, Evolved the Capital Regional Medical Center, I think, in 2003 uh, with our, our current facility. And now you fast forward another 20 years and we're, uh, you know, HC Florida Capital Hospital. And HC Florida unites us with all of our sister hospitals and really over 400 sites of care in the state of Florida. Uh, you know, no one really appreciated, I think, the fact that we had a, you know, one of the largest healthcare companies operating an organization here in Tallahassee. And when things like COVID occur, we can draw upon our resources all across the the state and even the nation. And I was going to ask you about this, and I don't know if it's really got a place in this or not, but I am interested in the dynamics of delivering care and mm-hmm. doing the best that you can at your hospital when you've got a TMH in town that is the huge traditional, you know, it's, yeah. it's the hospital for a lot of people mm-hmm. in this region. Mm-hmm. So does that... Um, change the way you operate is, you know, is there a such thing as competition? I know for physicians or programs or how, how do you think about that whole dynamic? Yeah, no, fundamentally, I may have worked in three different states, three different communities, they're very different healthcare markets, you know, wherever I've been. And I do think choice and access are the drivers uh, in our healthcare system 
of paramount importance. Mm. So I think patients should have a choice of where they choose to receive their care, and there should be access to care, uh, whether that's ER care, maternity care, any kind of care. I do see there there can be stagnation in any system if it's you know one provider, one player, long term. So I don't really see it as competition. I see it as sharpening ourselves. You know, mm-hmm. both organizations hopefully get better over time uh, because the patients ultimately have the choice of where they want to seek care. And I think that ultimate principle is really what drives us is to be the best uh, provider of choice uh, for those patients. Right. And I would assume there was a lot of collaboration during the early, you know, the early days of COVID between all the providers in town. I, I, I if I had to say collaboration, I mean, it's intimate collaboration. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have great relationships with the executives uh, over there. And we also, I remember being on site at a third party uh, kind of hot zone uh, at, uh, you know, late at night on a Friday with an executive from TMH together, uh, helping to solve the care for the patients at that institution so that our community would be safe. Right. So absolutely. I think during times of crisis, during times of you know acute need, all the hats go off, Doesn't just matter. like it did in Vegas. Right. I mean, yeah. I think it's the same concept. It's like all the pride goes out of the door, all the hats go off, and we're going to lock arms and care for the patients. And I think that can be hopefully reassuring to the community that we have that relationship. Yeah, for sure. All right, so what we talked about mountain biking. What do you? What else do you enjoy outside of work? What fills your life away from the hospital? No, definitely mountain biking here in Tallahassee. I love uh, the trails and getting out there and just uh, just losing all perspective and just cruising uh, on, on some of the trails. Right. Uh, I've tried to play golf. Uh, I've taken it up, but I keep losing golf balls. I don't know <laughs> if that was the the point of it, but I have a little group that I play with, and we we shoot like a hundred and hundred and five. Well, that's that's so respectable. We're, we're decent. Yeah. Uh, so we, we enjoy that. Uh, we play Kalarn a little bit. So we we enjoy that. And then just trying to find time with the family as, yeah. as your kids start to surpass you in height and uh, uh, stature and they're, they're only 12, you know, you realize that time is precious and trying to spend time with them. And then the last thing I'll say, my wife will kill me, I'll say this, but I have two poodles and I love I love my boys. So they're <laughs> my running buddies. So we go jogging oh, yeah. on the trails. Standard poodles? Big standard poodles. And so we they they love to be just jog and just be out there. And so that's uh, I do I do enjoy them as well. You know, you can make a lot of money if you hook them up with a Labrador or something, probably. Everything is everything is bred with a poodle. Just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason why, right? Everything ends in doodle. Exactly. That's so. funny. Um all right, two uh, two last questions, mm-hmm. and then we're done. All right, Alan, looking back, what is the one thing or person that changed or altered the trajectory of your life to this point? It, it, probably the biggest thing, this is going to be interesting as well, but it was really, I, I was, I'd say it was pretty aimless in general uh, in middle school and even early high school until I uh, uh, got connected with the family, the Horton family. And uh, I, that's when I, I think I had an inspiration because Bob Horton was an executive at AOL at the time, no longer, you know, exists. But, right. you know, he, he kind of took me under his wing and let me kind of see how, you know, he just lived as a business executive. And back then AOL was flying high. and Sending out uh, a lot of CDs. A lot of different things. <laughs> and, you know, he, you know, so I, I really do credit, you know, kind of 
him, uh, you know, kind of giving me a trajectory because as soon as I had a little, like, aspiration, mm -hmm. I started to get straight A's. And I never did well in SAT uh, or any of those tests, but I got straight A's because I worked. And I think that work ethic was really inspired by Bob Horton. So maybe he'll listen to this. Maybe I'll send it to him. And, um, and Bob, I'll give you your guitar back one day. <laughs> Well, Bob, you can listen wherever you get your podcasts on any platform. So check it out. Um, all right. Final question. This podcast is called How I Got Here. And we've talked how you got to this point in your life. Where do you think here may be for you in three to five years from now? I definitely think with, with HCA, I mean, we're a growing, thriving company and doing very well. And so just, you know, we're investing a lot into the future of Tallahassee's healthcare with new systems and programs we're bringing online, you know, now. Uh, there's a really bright future there with the company. And I think we're, we're all trying to come out of COVID and be, you know, stronger and better for our, for our respective communities. So absolutely see that right. uh, for me. And then, you know, married to my lovely wife, Jackie, uh, another three years at 16 years in and going to keep racking them up <laughs> and, uh, you know, enjoying Tallahassee mountain biking scene and doing what we do. That was Alan Cassie. If you happen to see Alan on an area bike trail and need medical assistance, I'm not sure how much he could help, but he certainly would know the right people to call. Thanks for listening to the show. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Thanks to my amazing staff at Fiori Communications, who pick up the slack while I'm working on these podcasts, and to Troy Bloom for composing our theme music. You can hear more of Troy's creations on Facebook and Instagram at Troy Bloom Music. To connect with the podcast or suggest a future guest, follow us on social media or email us at podcast at fioricommunications.com.